It's the Media Buzz Meter with Howard Kurtz. Okay, this is the classic definition of a slow news day. I'm just going to read you this headline. I am not making this up. Did a hot mic pick up a loud morning Joe burp? No, says Joe Scarborough. That's in Mediaite. There's this whole story and there's an update. Uh, he made a sound. Maybe it was dumb. Maybe it was a belch. I mean, seriously, is this what it has come to? Now, I will confess to being an occasional burper. And one of the reasons for that is I drink a lot of Coke Zero. And the reason for that is, particularly if I'm doing morning TV or morning podcasting, is I need the caffeine. I'm not a coffee drinker. And sometimes if I'm just, you know, haven't slept that well and I just need a little jolt, I'll do some of the uh, Coke. Um, but I don't think I've ever done it on the air because I strategically time any burps that I might or might not be indulging in to take place before I'm actually live. Uh, that would be the secret. Now, uh, now having said that, I'm going to be now very, very self-conscious about it. I'm not going to cross the line. Will Mediaite write a story about me? So I guess I got to be careful here. Jennifer Aniston is in the news. She did an interview with InStyle in which she said she has lost some friends, friends, get it, um, who refused or would not disclose their vaccination status. Uh, the actress says that she's supportive of social distancing, wearing masks and all of that. There's still a large group of people who are anti-vaxxers and just don't listen to the facts, she said in this interview. It's a real shame. Uh, she goes on to say, I feel it's your moral and professional obligation to inform since we're not all potted up and being tested every single day. It's tricky because everyone is entitled to their own opinion, but a lot of opinions, she says, don't feel based in anything except fear or propaganda. So Jennifer adding her voice uh, to the pro-vax side, but also just saying, hey, if I'm going to hang out with you, if you want to be in my circle of friends, I just need to know, have you gotten the shot or not? Now, the following is one of these head slappers where you just have to ask, what were they thinking? So there's a new book out about Osama bin Laden. Um, it's by Peter Bergen, The Rise and Fall of Osama bin Laden. So the New York Times assigns a book review. And the original headline on the book review in The Grey Lady is Osama bin Laden, the fanatical terrorist and the devoted family man. Now, what editor seeing this might think it's a good idea for the mass murderer, for the mastermind of 9-11 to be described in a partial headline as a devoted family man? Couldn't you say, hmm, this might trigger a reaction that might not make the paper look very good. So nevertheless, the thing gets published. People go bat crazy. Uh, and with good reason. I mean, you know, if this talks about his family in the book, fine, it's a book. And then the paper changed the headline. And then the revised headline is a fuller picture of Osama bin Laden's life. I mean, sometimes it just seems like People are asking for it. I mean, this guy is one of the most evil people who ever existed on the planet. I really don't care if he had a good relationship with his family or not. Again, fine to explore in a book, but for a headline? Wowza. Okay. Uh, meanwhile, Peter Ducey, White House correspondent for Fox News, uh, is um, described 
in another item on Media Eye today as the best reporter on the White House beat. Now, of course, he often gets into it with Jen Psaki, the press secretary. Um, he asks sharp edge questions uh, that she often deflects or takes on or challenges the premise. But, you know, that's kind of what White House reporters are supposed to do. And I think they both are very aware when they're doing the dance uh, that a lot of this will get picked up. Uh, sound bites will certainly be played on Fox, but sometimes elsewhere, a lot of it goes viral. Uh, Washington Post also has a story on this duo saying, Saki uh, usually maintains her cool, calmly reciting facts and counterarguments in reply. She often seems to anticipate what Ducey will ask, but at times seems mildly exasperated by him. Her tell is sarcasm. Welcome back, she said to scattered laughter after Ducey returned to the briefing room after a brief hiatus. Uh, also, the Post says, rather than grumbling about Ducey's approach, as her predecessors in the Trump administration did when confronted by reporters such as CNN's Jim Acosta, Saki has acknowledged that the White House needs Ducey as a way of reaching uh, the large Fox audience. Uh, Jen Saki seems to recognize, the piece says, best way to guarantee a soundbite on Fox, especially about critical vaccine information, is to engage with its reporter. And so the two battle on amid cheers and jeers from their audience on social media. Now, I do have to say, you know, as the story points out, I mean, the White House press briefings, which are not usually carried live, as it always was with Sean Spicer and Sarah Sanders, um, is a much more docile place right now. The network stars who used to really take on not just Donald Trump when they got to him, and they got to him a lot because he took a lot of questions from reporters, you know, far, far more than Joe Biden does, but with his various press secretaries. Um, so why is it that Peter Ducey often seems to be the only one taking a harder-edged approach? I think that's a question worth asking. Um, and does that mean every question he asks is perfectly phrased? No. And, you know, does Saki sometimes make it personal in response? Yes. Uh, but by and large, it's civil. And that's the whole trick to being a beat reporter. you got to press, whether it's the president or the president's press secretary, on substantive matters and follow up. Uh, and you have to not come off, and, and nobody is saying that Peter does this, as being so adversarial that it seems personal. That's what Jim Acosta did. He made it clear that he had an agenda. That he was outraged. He wouldn't give up the mic. Um, and I guess it was good theater for him, and now he has the show on CNN. All right, let's get down to business here. Number one, I want to talk about the evictions controversy because there's a real tell here uh, that has to do with media bias. Now, what happened is, if you haven't been following this, and, and, and I know it's kind of a process story and it might put some people to sleep, but here's the deal. Um, the Washington Post has a story today, say the House liberals, buoyed by their successful push to get a moratorium on evictions extended, said they plan to keep pressuring the Biden administration to chart a leftward course while vowing to hold party leaders to their promise to move an infrastructure plan only if it is accompanied by trillions of dollars in new social safety net spending. Okay, so on the surface, it seems to be a story about the left wing of the Democratic Party and people like AOC in the House um, seeing that as their role to pressure President Biden not just on this battle over evictions, which I'll get to in a second, but on all kinds of spending that they want that maybe the Biden administration has trouble getting because there are also moderate, moderate Democrats, especially in the Senate. 
the lawmakers who called on the administration to extend the moratorium after the White House insisted it did not have the legal authority to do so, said the lesson they took away from the experience is that their activist backgrounds and methods can achieve results, even as they now fight their battles from inside the government. Now, here's my problem with this story and many similar stories about this. What Joe Biden did was he did a 180. The president wanted to extend a ban on evictions that was passed actually first during the Trump administration, then it lapsed, then the CDC came in, and then repeatedly renewed it during the Biden administration. And, you know, you can understand why uh, anybody in government, Republican or Democrat, would not want to see hundreds of thousands or even millions of people lose their apartments, lose their homes, because they lost their jobs or their income was greatly reduced during the pandemic. But what happened is it went to the Supreme Court, and in a ruling um, that was authored by Brett Kavanaugh, the Supreme Court flatly said that what the CDC did was unconstitutional. Unconstitutional. Then the high court allowed a month so that Congress could act. If Congress wanted to pass a law saying you can't, even on a temporary basis, evict people for these reasons, that would be constitutional. But for an executive branch agency to do it was against the rules. Now, who agreed with that position? President Biden agreed with that position. He actually came out and said at a news conference that the reason that I'm not doing this, though I would like to do this, is that I don't think I have the legal authority. But then he did it anyway because he was under so much pressure from the AOC wing of the Democratic Party. Now, think about the way that Donald Trump was covered when he did things, executive orders and others, that stretched his authority uh, at the very least. For example, he wanted money to build the wall. We're going to build the wall. Congress wouldn't give it to him, couldn't get it through Congress. So he just did it on his own. He says, we're going to unilaterally take money that was appropriated for other reasons, and we're going to shift it to the Pentagon to build the wall. He didn't, wasn't able to build very much of the wall, but nevertheless, he did do that. And the media went crazy. The media went insane over this. The Democratic Party went insane over this. This He is not a dictator. He shouldn't be able to do this unilaterally. Now, every president, you know, Barack Obama and the Dreamers, you know, pen and pad, does things that then wind up challenged in the courts. And, you know, either they're upheld or they're not upheld. But the interesting thing here is Biden himself said, I don't have the legal authority, and then he did it anyway. So where are all the outrage stories about that? No, instead, here's the Washington Post saying, well, you know, this is a victory for the libs. They got Biden to do it, and now they want to get Biden to do more things. Now, it's different on spending because that's not a constitutional question. Um, as the story acknowledges, Oh, they were ticked off because the White House didn't inform them of Biden's decision. Well, he was studying it and trying to figure out, is there a way that I could do this? Uh, Corey Bush, who's sleeping out at the cap on the Capitol steps to try to bring visibility to this issue, and other liberal members who are new to Congress, uh, harshly criticized the administration while imploring congressional leaders to stay in town to work on a solution rather than adjourning for the summer recess. After a few days, the White House capitulated and announced it was extending the program with some tweaks even though President Biden acknowledged the action may be shut down by the courts. Where is the coverage of Biden defying the Supreme Court? Well, I'll tell you where some of it is. 
it's on the editorial page of the Washington Post. While the story is all about the politics and what a great liberal victory this was, here's what a Washington Post editorial says. The CDC's action was almost certainly illegal. Under pressure from Nancy Pelosi and progressive Dems, President Biden the CDC may have muted accusations that they failed to stick up for desperate renters. The administration may also succeed in giving many Americans a short reprieve from eviction, reprieve from eviction, but perhaps not as long as advertised because courts may strike it down. In fact, a landlord's group has already filed a lawsuit. This is going to go through the court system, but obviously that takes time. All this, says the Post editorial, was at the expense of the rule of law. The CDC tried to get around the ruling by issuing a new ban that covers only areas that are experiencing substantial and high levels of coronavirus transmission. And how much is that? It's 80% of the counties in this country. Finally, Mr. Biden does not get a pass on the rule of law because his heart is in the right place. Well, good for the editorial page of the Washington Post, but I look elsewhere, all I see is politics, politics, politics. And even the press doesn't even care that much about the eviction. They just cared about it as a political battle. I mean, I understand. I don't want to see people thrown out in the cold. I don't want to see people become homeless. Why can't Congress get it together and do something about it? The Supreme Court has spoken. And instead, Biden is pushing something that he knows, that he knows was probably not going to fly. Here's National Review, also very critical. Biden certainly isn't the first president to violate his oath of office, but he might be the first in memory to openly brag about doing it. When he announced this new eviction moratorium, he said that the bulk of constitutional scholars would say the CVC eviction moratorium is not likely to pass constitutional muster. Not likely, says the magazine, it already failed, and it goes into the history about uh, the Supreme Court. What stops Biden from stalling and trying a third time, a tenth time? Biden admitted to the media that he would be circumventing the courts and the law and his oath of office, in which he promised to preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. Okay. Jen Psaki asked about this. She says, well, it's going to be a temporary solution. But still, they're getting around a Supreme Court ruling. Now, you tell me if President Trump had done the exact same thing in the face of a ruling from SCOTUS that the coverage would be about what a great victory this was. For his party, I don't think so. Finally, uh, the National Review says that not taking no for an answer. Oh, AOC is quoted as saying, we would not take no for an answer. Not taking no for an answer, in this take, not, not in this case, not taking no for an answer from the Supreme Court, is lawlessness. It just gives you uh, some insight into how the media frame things. Don't go anywhere. More BuzzMeter coming your way in just a moment. All right, number two, every time there's a special election, all the political reporters write stories saying, this shows you there's a national trend of ABCDE. And I always come on and say, uh, no, it doesn't, because all politics is local. And these are always low turnout elections. Almost by definition, a special election is, you know, the party loyalists who show up. So uh, on Tuesday, Nina Turner, Bernie Sanders' ally, uh, who was running for the Democratic nomination for a seat in Ohio, uh, lost former uh, far-left state legislator, according to the New York Times. She wouldn't even endorse Hillary Clinton over Donald Trump in 2016. She described voting for President Biden as a grossly unpalatable option. So there were obvious reasons Democratic voters might view her with mistrust. Nevertheless, having said that, the Times then goes on to say her unexpectedly wide defeat, I think it's about six points, 
Um, mark the demise, uh, did more than mark the demise of a social media flamethrower. It was an exclamation mark in a series of electoral setbacks for the left and victories for traditional Democratic Party leaders. So this goes on to cite other elections and say, hey, the people who are winning on the Democratic side are the moderates, are the establishment, are the people who back the Biden administration, and not the more progressive left-wingers. And this is a victory for the coalition that Biden assembled in 2020 of uh, blacks and Hispanics, moderate older white voters, white centrists, labor unions. In Ohio, it was enough to fell Nina Turner, uh, even though she drew ferocious opposition from local and national Dems, including leaders of the Congressional Black Caucus who campaigned for her opponent, Chantel Brown. All I say is, like, fine, like, political reporters have to have something to do. But it's one race in one district by somebody who had a lot of baggage who didn't even support Hillary Clinton. You think she might not be the most popular figure in a Democratic primary? Um, but nevertheless, um, the tea leaves, reading tea leaves is, I guess, what we do, even when the tea leaves are kind of muddy and murky. All right, let me move on to number three, because I want to come back to the Andrew Cuomo story, and I got a lot to say. Number three. Fascinating piece in the Times. You know, there's a little been a lot of blather about this. I spent the last two days, uh, I was on the air three times yesterday, including a package for special report about all the implications of the media and Andrew Cuomo and how, you know, he had been lionized last year during the pandemic. And now the entire media establishment has turned on him. I use some of the things I said on the podcast yesterday, where I read from the New York Times and Washington Post editorials saying Cuomo must go. He can't survive. And if he doesn't go, he's likely to be impeached. And I'll get to that in a second. But here's a, a piece by a veteran Albany reporter for the Times. It talked about the culture in Cuomo's office and the enabling role played by many of his top aides. And it draws heavily on the report by State Attorney General Letitia James. To exist as a woman in Cuomo's orbit, the report suggested, according to the Times, was to live in, quote, the, the dichotomy between fear and flirtation, a space where the boss could toggle between intimate and intimidating Great phrase there. And where his senior most aides seemed to operate with a singular focus on the governor's reputation and personal comfort. In fact, the report says as Cuomo sexually harassed women inside and outside government, greater pains were taken to protect him from himself. The executive chamber declined to report harassment allegations from an executive assistant, Charlotte Bennett, to the appropriate state agency and moved instead to establish a practice preventing certain female staff members from being left alone with the governor. In other words, they didn't trust their own guy, but rather than follow the rules, they just tried to make sure he wasn't in a position to harass Charlotte Bennett and others. Of course, that didn't work. Um, his inner circle uh, tried to minimize exposure for Cuomo and accentuate a culture of fear around confronting him with access chiefly granted to those with a proven personal Loyalty. Investigators wrote that, quoting again, employees who are not part of this inner circle of loyalists would rightly believe and did believe that any complaint or allegation about the governor would be handled by people whose overriding interest is in protecting the governor. That's why a lot of these women didn't come forward. Who are they going to go to? If they go to somebody else in the office, those people were such loyalists that they were more interested in protecting Andrew Cuomo than in recognizing that women were being mistreated by the liberal Democratic 
governor. Uh, here's a, um, an email. Uh, oh, it's a, it's a memo that a, a senior Cuomo staff member wrote to herself. Quote, there were several orders of victims in this issue. First and foremost, the women who experienced these things with him. Second, though, and unrecognized are the staff. We are almost uniformly good people who killed ourselves to accomplish his agenda for his political glory and for the feeling that he would make decisions with public service as his driving goal. I feel cheated out of that. Meanwhile, on the politics of this, the Times reports elsewhere that, uh, you know, I told you yesterday, and I'm sure you've seen President Biden, Nancy Pelosi, the Democratic senators, um, all bailing on uh, Andrew Cuomo. Now, in addition, you have a, a quick Maris poll saying that majority of New Yorkers believe the governor should resign. I think it was 59%, including most registered Democrats. Meanwhile, labor unions, one after another, part of Cuomo's base of support, bailing on him. The state Democratic chairman, handpicked by Governor Cuomo, Jay Jacobs, now says he should resign. So does Hazel Dukes, president of the New York NAACP. She has been around so long that I remember going to cover speeches by Mario Cuomo, where she would be in the audience and she would get a shout out. She is a major uh, figure in New York state politics. She says, uh, she didn't say Andrew should quit. She just wouldn't support him. She says, I'm not going to support him. I'm troubled by this report. Now we get to the mechanics of this, which is really fascinating. It's not like a presidential impeachment. By the way, there's been only one governor, a guy named William Solzer, I guess his name has been lost to history, impeached in New York. And that was more than 100 years ago. So it could take about a month for Assembly Democrats to put together this impeachment inquiry. It looks like they have the votes. The State Assembly Speaker, Carl Hasty, another former Cuomo ally, uh, wants to go forward. That would put a trial in the State Senate uh, as soon as the end of September or the early part of October, unless Cuomo resigns first. Um, here's the thing that is very different. If the state assembly votes to impeach Andrew Cuomo, he's sidelined. He has to step aside temporarily. And the lieutenant governor I mentioned yesterday, Kathy Hochul, not very well known even in New York, uh, she would serve as acting governor until the end of the process. So uh, no uh, presumption of innocence there. Now, if the state Senate then acquitted Cuomo, he would come back to the job. But can you imagine this going on for um, a month or two? And Cuomo's not even governor. I mean, I, it just is a very different picture. And by the way, the members of the jury would be all the state senators, except one, the majority leader, who's in the line of succession, and all seven members of the New York Court of Appeals, which is the highest court in the state. So just a very different process. Uh, one more note on um, the Cuomo situation. I reported yesterday, and I've talked to you on the podcast, about uh, Chris Cuomo's role. Uh, which is in the report, his brother, the CNN primetime host. And by the way, he, many stories describe him as an anchor. He's not an anchor. He was an anchor for years at ABC. He was an anchor for years at CNN. But now he's an opinion guy. He has a primetime show in which he offers his opinion and does a lot of interviews. He was a good anchor, but host is a better way to describe him. I know a lot of people use the term interchangeably. So the New York Times has the lead to its story on Chris Cuomo saying that earlier this year, CNN executives went to Chris Cuomo and floated this idea. He's, by the way, has a top-rated show on CNN, which is why he's treated well. If he wanted to formally advise his brother, Andrew Cuomo, 
on responding to the sexual harassment accusations. And actually, he did it informally on conference calls and in reviewing and perhaps editing or even writing a draft statement of denial that the governor then issued. Anyway, CNN brass went to him and said, you could take a leave, take a temporary leave from the network, and you can go you know, do the brotherly love thing, and then you can come back. It wasn't a request. It was just an idea that was floated, an acknowledgement of Cuomo's unique position as a primetime host and brother of a prominent politician. Anyway, Cuomo decided not to do that. I wonder if, retrospect, it might have been a better idea. All right, number four. Attorneys for Donald Trump went to court yesterday. They blasted a Justice Department ruling directing the Treasury Department to turn over his tax returns to Congress. Uh, Remember, they went to the Manhattan DA. And by the way, one thing I didn't mention in the previous item about Andrew Cuomo is that several local prosecutors, Manhattan DA, I think Westchester County DA, Albany DA, are all either opening or looking at criminal inquiries. That adds another layer. Is there a crime here in the way in which he harassed these women? Uh, The groping would be a misdemeanor, according to what I've read, just so you know that part. So the Trump lawyers are saying this is an outrageous and political effort by the Biden Justice Department, an effort at what they described as partisan retaliation by Democrats. So the July 30th opinion by what's called the Office of Legal Counsel within DOJ uh, says that, um, you know, this should be given to the House. And, of course, it would become public then. Uh, Trump's lawyers say this is an attempt to expose the private tax information of one individual, President Trump, for political gain. The government's complete reversal on the legality of the request, because obviously had taken a different position beforehand, Uh, came, of course, under President Biden, a Democrat who ran against President Trump and made the disclosure of President Trump's tax returns a campaign issue, says the Trump lawyers. Now, I don't think there's any evidence that President Biden, who has made uh, a real point of emphasizing that he takes a handoff approach, hands-off approach to DOJ, in marked contrast to his predecessor. He used to talk about pending cases all the time, whether it was Roger Stone, Mike Flynn, whatever. He would publicly say, I want Bill Barr or Jeff Sessions to do this. Why hasn't there been charges brought against Obama people uh, for what he would call illegal surveillance, um, what others would call the administration, you know, eavesdropping on foreign nationals and then maybe... uh, other American names get mentioned, then you go through this process called unmasking. Uh, so on the one hand, look, I think President Trump has a right through his lawyers to say this is a political decision by the DOJ and to try to fight it. Obviously, he does not want these tax returns public, although the New York Times has has printed, uh, has published you know, last year, the gist of a lot of his tax returns, even though they don't have the full thing. But I don't think it's fair to say that Joe Biden did this. But of course, when you're a lawyer, you make any argument you can. Finally, number five, The Atlantic has a big piece, including an interview with Kamala Harris. Uh, It's by reporter Peter Nicholas. And the mere fact that the interview was granted shows you, uh, I think, that the VP is playing defense about the perception that she's not as popular as Joe Biden, which is supported by polls. So this is an interesting piece. He goes to the West Wing to interview her. And Peter Nicholas writes that as the conversation went on, I saw her politician snack for filibustering, limiting the number of questions a reporter can ask in the time available. Uh, One Harris answer started with musings about the attempted coup, 
and ended with a plug for the child tax credit. She's plainly wary of saying anything that might deviate from President Biden's message that Democrats and Republicans need to reach across the aisle. Now, the piece goes on to say many Democrats openly doubt Harris's ability to defeat Trump if she's the nominee in 2024 and he runs again, or one of the many Republicans remaking themselves as a Trump-style candidate. Polls show Biden is significantly more popular than Harris. It's about uh, her, her approval rating is 45%, according to the real clear politics polling errors. That's 7% lower than Biden. Senior White House officials said vice presidents aren't as known, and that's true. It's hard for a new vice president to carve out his or her own identity. Obviously, Kamala Harris, the first black vice president and the first female vice president. So The Atlantic says the following. The simplest explanation for this polling gap is sexism and racism. Men view Harris unfavorably by an 18-point margin, and she is a convenient proxy for conservative pundits who have demeaned her through sexist tropes. Well, some of that may be true, uh, and I can't be shocked if, if, that that's true because there's never been a female vice president and there's never been a black vice president, although there certainly has been a black president. Um, but I don't think that's all of it. I think that um, it's hard for Harris, as for any uh, VP, to carve out her own identity. Uh, Biden has certainly not done her any favors by assigning her to be the point person on the border, which is a kind of an intractable problem. Uh, Harris's fiercest liberal defenders, as the Atlantic, have hinted that Biden has put her in an impossible position with this border assignment. I asked Harris, says uh, the reporter, if she regretted confronting Biden at the 2019 debate. Now, it had to do with his record on busing in Delaware, and once she said, that little girl was me, she just said, there is no sunlight or daylight between he and I on the issue of race, on the history of racism in our country, and also what we need to do going forward to fight for equity based on race, gender, and everything else. Interesting little side note here, another quote from uh, Kamala. Part of my frustration is the way the system rewards sound bites, she says, as opposed to depth and thought. Uh, Atlantic says she really did seem fed up with the media portrayal of her, particularly when it comes to those clips that drive headlines. Well, you know what? That's the way the system works. She may well have a point. Kamala Harris could do more interviews if she wants to have a separate identity. She shouldn't have the break with Biden. Of course, if you break with your president, you suddenly find yourself iced out. You're not in key meetings. Um, maybe your budget gets cut, and the piece goes into the history of VPs and their relationship with presidents. But I think by only doing these handful of very friendly interviews, um, Kamala Harris may be at the White House's direction is kind of limiting her ability to carve out a separate identity. She doesn't have to have an ounce of difference, even if she had in the past taken different positions. That's very common when you're picked to be vice president. Your policies are the president's policies. But she could do more, and I think she's just kind of timid. Remember, for months she wouldn't go to the border, and finally she went at dealing with the press. Now, maybe talking to a reporter for the Liberal Atlantic magazine is a way for her to do that. At the same time, I think she's got to be a little bit bolder. And I think maybe if it could get her approval ratings up, that the Biden inner circle would even support that. But it's continuing to be an ongoing story. 
Hey, thanks very much for sharing this time with me. You can do the subscription thing. I still have to look into all the different ways you can get podcasts, but I know you can get it on your Amazon device or a Google podcast or an Apple iTunes. We can also leave comments. We'll be back here tomorrow. Hope to see you all then with more Busby. Listen to the all-new Brett Bear podcast featuring Common Ground, in-depth talks with lawmakers from opposite sides of the aisle, along with all your Brett Bear favorites like his all-star panel and much more. Available now at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts.